Open up your Bible, if you would, this morning to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. We are trekking right along in our study through, our verse-by-verse study through the book of Galatians. As we go through this amazing letter that Paul wrote to these young churches of Galatia, um, we need to see that even though God is addressing these churches, he is addressing us as well. This is God's word. It applies to us. This is written to us. And there's rich theology. There's rich application for us, Harbins, in this letter to the Galatians. I've thoroughly enjoyed and benefited from the journey thus far, and I hope you have as well. So as we come to chapter 3, uh, for the sake of context, let's look in the rearview mirror a bit to remember where we've come from. The churches that Paul is writing to uh, are churches that he planted on his very first missionary journey. He and Barnabas, they evangelized, they planted churches, they even appointed elders in the churches. And then upon returning to their home base, Antioch, they found out or they heard that there was a false teaching that had emerged and was beginning to spread among the churches of Galatia. Matter of fact, it was even spreading there in, in Paul's local church in Antioch. And that false teaching was a teaching that basically was telling people they needed to add to the gospel, that Jesus' work on the cross wasn't sufficient, it wasn't enough. Something needed to be added to the gospel. And in this case, it was a group called the Judaizers who were coming in and, and telling people they needed to keep the, the Mosaic laws, especially circumcision. And so they had begun to cast doubt in the people's hearts, not only on the authentic gospel itself, but doubts upon Paul's authority. And so Paul spends the, the first part of this letter to the Galatians really giving us a biographical sketch of his apostolic authority. And he does this because his authority is directly tied to, his authority as an apostle is directly tied to the authority of the message that he's preaching. And so through this biographical journey, Paul shows the Galatians that the gospel came straight to him from the Lord Jesus. But at the same time, he was preaching a gospel that was consistent with the Jerusalem apostles. He wasn't dependent upon any of those men, but at the same time, his message wasn't contradicting any of the gospel message that the apostles there in Jerusalem were teaching. So confident was Paul in the authority of, of the gospel that he was preaching that he was even willing to confront another apostle if they began to stray from it. You remember that Peter showed up in Antioch and had been eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles, treating them as brothers in Christ. But then when some men from Jerusalem showed up, probably some Judaizers showed up, he began to, to break away and he was no longer eating with them. He was separating himself from them. And when Paul saw this duplicitous behavior from Peter, he, he wasn't going to let it stand. So he confronted him to his face. And so within this confrontation, in Paul's recollection of what he said to Peter, we see a shift in the letter from the biographical, where Paul is talking about his apostleship and how he came to, to receive the, the gospel. And we see a shift from that to more of a theological uh, aspect to this letter. So in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, we saw last week that Paul defended justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And he clearly declares in that passage that no one can be saved by works of the law. Instead, we must live by faith in the resurrected Christ. 
he ends that statement emphatically, he ends that section, I should say, emphatically stating, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, he could have ended the letter right there at the end of verse 21. But Paul has plenty more to say. And so really, chapters 3 and 4 are an amplification of the theology he's already begun to lay down there in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. So we're going to start to dig into this theology that Paul is giving us as we look at the first 14 verses of chapter 3. So please stand, if you would now, as we read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of reading uh, the Word of God because we believe this is in the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Verse 1 of Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us receptive hearts. It's so easy for our eyes to stray from the cross and to stray from the gospel. It's so easy for us because it's our, our default position. So long as we are in these bodies of flesh, it is our de default position to look for things that we can get credit for in our spiritual life. So Lord, this morning I pray that you would Turn our eyes back to Christ, back to Jesus, and cause us to see that our only hope is in Him, and that not only to come into the Christian life, but to, to live it, we must have faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you strengthen our faith this morning. Forgive us of our sins that we have committed this week. Lord, I pray that you would cleanse our hearts, make us receptive, give us ears to hear, and give me a mouth to speak. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I don't know how many of you guys have driven up I-95 um, from um, South Carolina into North Carolina. Have any of you ever driven that route, I-95, going from South Carolina into North Carolina? All right. 
did any of you see this crazy place called South of the Border? Have any of y'all seen that? Okay. How many of y'all have seen that? All right. If you've driven I-95 from South Carolina to North Carolina and you're telling me you haven't seen that, then I'm telling you you are blind. You're blind. Because on the way there, uh, surely some, I don't know, 30 miles before you even get there, you start seeing billboards, gigantic billboards. And then only like five feet later, there's another billboard. And then another five feet and another billboard. Billboard after billboard after billboard saying south of the border. And this place, I, I can't really call it a rest stop or a truck stop. Or, it's got a little bit of everything. I haven't stopped there. I mean, the billboards had no effect on me. I just kept on going. But it, 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 there's lots of stuff apparently you can do there. There's go-karts. There's everything at this place called South of the Border. And once you finally get there, you'll see it's this big old complex with all this stuff. But, but you cannot miss South of the Border if you're driving on I-95 going from South Carolina to North Carolina. Matter of fact, if you were to tell me I've never heard of the place, never seen it, I would say, well, then you haven't really been on the road. You haven't been on I-95 from South Carolina to North Carolina because you can't miss it. There's billboards everywhere. It's, it's so prominent. And so I was thinking about th that this morning, about how you can't miss south of the border if you're driving up I-95. And if anyone claimed to not know about it, if anyone driving that route claimed to have not seen it, and not seen the insane amount of billboards advertising it going both directions, I wouldn't believe them. Well, Paul here in today's passage, he can't believe, he can't believe the Galatians. And they so quickly forgotten the cross. He's incredulous. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This, this word for publicly portrayed, it's one word in the Greek. And it was a word used uh, to refer to a public announcement or public advertising. It literally meant to write something on a placard or in a sign for all to see. In essence, it's a billboard. Paul is saying that it was before your eyes, before your very eyes, that the billboard of the gospel was shown to you. It was clearly and graphically displayed. Now, of course, he's speaking metaphorically here. Paul had faithfully preached the gospel, and by his words, he had painted a, a picture for them of all that Christ had done for them. His message was the cross. His message was always the cross. That was the only thing he was going to put on the billboard, the cross. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 says, that Paul says, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he had faithfully portrayed Christ, and now he's obviously upset. Oh, foolish Galatians, you numbskulls, you nitwits. Now, this is a loving rebuke. Paul loves these people. He calls them brothers in the same letter as well. He even calls them dear children. He, he loves them. So this is a loving rebuke. J.B. Phillips translates it this way. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Now calling someone a fool in our day may sound harsh to us, but, but Jesus uses the exact same word when he speaks to the confused disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 25. Oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's a firm but loving rebuke. Of course, what Jesus and Paul were bemoaning wasn't intellectual stupidity, but spiritual stupidity. 
The Galatians had foolishly allowed their minds to wander by taking their eyes off of the billboard displaying the heavenly truths of the gospel. They instead had allowed their eyes to become enchanted with teachings that please the flesh. Now it's evident by these words that Paul is holding them accountable for their own spiritual idiocy. But Paul is also alluding to some other contributing forces here. He says, who has bewitched you? Certainly the Judaizers would be a fitting answer to that question. But who here is in the singular? In the Greek, it's singular. So it may not be so much the Judaizers that Paul is speaking of here, but even a more sinister force, a more sinister source behind the Judaizers, Satan himself. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And his plan of attack against the church is simply this, to get our eyes off the gospel. That's Satan's plan of attack against the church, is to get our eyes off the gospel, get us bewitched with something else. Bewitched literally means to cast a spell through an evil eye. Paul is saying the Galatians have taken their eyes off of the gospel and have become hypnotized by false demonic teachings. And all false doctrine, all false teachings that come into the church are demonic. They had taken their eyes off of Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified. I used to have a friend in college, a close friend of mine, but he was notoriously bad at driving. I never liked riding with him, especially if we were going on a long trip. He was, hey, tell me if you know anyone like this. He's the kind of guy, and we, we were in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where you're, you're driving down freeways that have like, like 10 lanes, okay? And he's the kind of guy who's driving down, he's way over in the far left lane, and you see the sign come by that says the interstate we need to go on, you know, has little arrows going this way, and then the other interstate that we shouldn't go on has little arrows going this way. And we'd be driving, I'd see the sign, and then he'd just keep on driving and be staying in that left lane. And then another sign would come saying about the same thing, a little less distance now. And he would just keep on driving. And what would always happen inevitably is that right when you see the split in the road, he's going, oh, 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 oh. And he's trying to go across 10 lanes of traffic to get over that. That was always the way he drove. Now, I think in my old age, I'm increasingly becoming like that. Uh, lately, it seems I've been very distracted. I don't know how many times over the last week Heather said, did you not see this? That was the street we were supposed to take. I, I, I don't know. So what's happening here is that these guys, it's been portrayed in them. The gospel, the path of the gospel has been clearly laid out by Paul for their life. And, and here they are. They've taken their eyes off of the gospel and they're distracted. They're, they're, they're living the Christian life distracted. So why do we talk about gospel-centeredness so much here at Harbin's? We talk about it because not to center everything we do on the gospel is to wander into foolish distractions and I say to fall into the devil's trap. When Paul says that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, this verb here, crucified, it's in the present tense, meaning it's a past event that continues to have significance into the present. It's by this, Paul is stating that the cross isn't merely a historical event that we, that we just assent to believing in, it's much more. The effects of the cross carry into the present and should drive everything we do as believers. So this morning, the first thing I think Paul would want us to do 
Paul wants us to look to the cross and hear with faith that, number one, your whole salvation has been achieved by Christ. Look to the cross and hear with faith that your whole salvation, every bit of your salvation, has been achieved by Christ. So having chastised them for their state of spiritual stupidity, in verse 1, the apostle then in verses 2 through 6 is going to, to pose some rhetorical questions to expose their faulty thinking. Verse 2. Let me ask you only this. And by the way, it may not come through in the English, but when he says that, Paul is alluding to their spiritual dullness. It's like him saying, let me make it simple. Let me ask you one simple question, O foolish Galatians. So let me make it simple here. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, how were you saved? The receiving of the indwelling Spirit is simply part of God's work of salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, 22, Ephesians 1, 13, and Ephesians 4, 30 all speak of us being sealed with the Holy Spirit when we're saved. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so the question Paul puts before the Galatians is how? How were you saved? By works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. The Galatians knew that the gift of the Holy Spirit wasn't attained by their strength or merited by their good works. Instead, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with a heavenly gift graciously poured out upon them, received by faith and not by works. Paul says much the same thing just a few verses later in verse 5, but this time he changes the focus from us to God. So in verse 2, the rhetorical question starts with, did you receive the Spirit? But then in verse 5, Paul asks this, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. So two questions with the same answer. How did you receive the Spirit? And how did God supply the Spirit? Answer, through faith and not by works. So specifically here in, in verses 2 and in verse 5, we see that it's through hearing with faith. Hearing with faith. This tells us so much about how God chooses to work and how faith is birthed in the human heart. The Galatians' salvation came when they heard the gospel message and believed in it. The gospel had been clearly, graphically billboarded to them, and God used that message to penetrate hard hearts and stir up saving faith. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 23, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but through the imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, James 1.18. Of his own will, speaking of God, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So we are brought forth, we are regenerated, we are saved by hearing the word of God with faith. But not only is hearing with faith how we come into the Christian life, it's also the means by which we continue in the Christian life. Let me say that again. Not only is hearing faith the means by which we come into the Christian life. It's also the means by which we continue in the Christian life. And that's what Paul addresses in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Paul's rhetorical question teaches us that 
We're not only saved by faith, but we are sanctified by faith as well. We're not only made spiritually alive by faith, but also we must go on living by faith. This simply uh, backs up what Paul has already taught. Remember chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul is getting to the heart of the problem here. You see, the Judaizers had come in and they had said, hey, listen, Jesus, Jesus is good and Jesus is a good start. But now the law is necessary to finish the job. Good works were necessary, especially circumcision. It's necessary for your faith to be perfected. You need to do these things. But Paul says that such thinking is utter foolishness. Faith in the finished work of Christ is necessary from start to finish. To revert to works of the law was to trust in one's own flesh to complete one's own salvation. But friends, if we can save ourselves by our own power, if we can't save ourselves by our own power, then how on earth can we keep ourselves and perfect ourselves by our own power? It's impossible. Our salvation is God's work through and through from beginning to end. Philippians 1.16, you guys know this verse. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the means God uses to complete us is hearing with faith. So friends, here's the point. Faith in the gospel isn't merely how we come into our relationship with Christ. It's also by the means by which we remain in our relationship with Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Now I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel. So Paul, speaking to believers, I will remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, there's the faith, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. That is why we must, as a church, keep looking at the billboard, keep Christ crucified before our eyes. We must be gospel-centered, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, in the process, being saved. It is the power of God. Don't look away from the billboard thinking that you can, in your own power, complete your sanctification. You must continue to look to the cross. You see how central the gospel is to Christian living. It's so easy to become bewitched with something other than the gospel. I've been around long enough now as a pastor to see people elevate a lot of things. A lot of things to the level of the gospel and thereby become bewitched by those things. When people elevate something, something some, some pet thing that they love, and they elevate it to the level of the gospel, it is such a difficult conversation to have because they really become bewitched. They love that thing. And you begin to touch on that thing or even begin to, to, to criticize that in any sort of way because they've put it at the level of the gospel, that bewitching effect causes great harm in the body. Some of those things are even good things that people end up elevating to the level of the gospel. But again, if we put anything, any of our hope for spiritual growth, any of our hope for deeper, deeper relationship with God, any of our hope for a closer walk with Jesus, if we begin to put any of our hope on anything outside of the cross, 
then we are in danger of falling into spiritual stupidity. The gospel isn't a doctrine that mature Christians graduate past. No, it's the only hope to become a mature Christian. And this is why everything we do at Harbin's must be centered on the gospel. We bring everything back to the cross. Our evangelism obviously must be centered on the gospel, but so too our fellowship must be driven by the gospel. Any mercy ministry or anything like that that we're involved in must be centered on the gospel. Our defense of the faith, as we talked about in Bible study this morning, must be centered on the gospel. Our counseling must be centered on the gospel. That's why I'm thoroughly convinced that true biblical counseling, nuthetic counseling, is one of the key ways for our church to stay gospel-centered. Let me give you an example. Say someone comes to me and they're having issues with anger. They're angry all the time, angry at people, angry at their spouse, angry at their work. I won't simply counsel that person and give them tools to help them learn to control their anger or methods to cool down in certain situations. I won't simply try to help them avoid situations that cause them to boil. Why not? Because anger is a gospel issue. Uncontrolled bitterness is a result of not living in line with the gospel. If I want to help a person see the anti-gospel root of their anger, I have to take them to the gospel. There is something they want that when they are not getting it, it's leading to anger. There is something they want more than Jesus. The gospel says Jesus is all they need. But their anger is saying they need something else to be complete, to be happy, to have hope. They need a loving husband. They need an understanding boss. They need respect, whatever it is. There is an idol of the heart that's not being served, and they're getting angry. It's a gospel issue. It could be anything. Approval. Comfort. But it's a gospel issue. They don't believe, the person struggling with anger doesn't believe, doesn't have faith that Jesus is all they need. They don't believe in all that Jesus is for them and they are looking for someone, something outside of the cross. They've taken their eyes off the billboard. They are looking for a functional savior. And so they must repent, look to the cross, Believe in all that Christ has done for them. Believe in all that Christ is for them. And believe in who they now are in him. And by looking to the cross, their eyes will be turned away from the bewitching idol that tried to replace Jesus. That's how we counsel. We always come back to the cross. We are saved and sanctified by hearing with faith. Hearing with faith is the only way God's people have ever been saved and sanctified. And that's what Paul wants us to see next in verse 5. It's always been this way. Hearing with faith is the key. Verse 5. Actually, I'm going to let verse 5 set up verse 6. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just as. That's a one-word conjunction in the Greek. At the beginning of verse 6, that little word has huge, huge theological implications. Gigantic. That one word is drawing a direct line from our faith to Abraham's. It's drawing a direct parallel. It is saying that our salvation is in the same manner. It's of the same type as Abraham's. 
We are to hear with faith just as Abraham is drawing a direct line. Friends, there has always only been and only will be one plan of salvation for mankind. Man has always had to look to God in faith to provide salvation. Now Paul here is quoting Genesis 15, 6, and thereby giving the Galatians and us the scriptural foundation for hearing with faith. So Paul, Paul is an exegete. He's going to go to the scriptures. He's going to go. The rest of this passage, he is quoting scripture after scripture after scripture to show you. Number one, it shows us that the Old Testament gives us, in the Old Testament, we have the gospel. That's one thing we'll see. But also, he's using this to back up his argument. Because these Judaizers have, have taken some scripture and twisted it and misused it. And he's going to show that what they're teaching is false. He's going to use the Bible to do it. So I want to look at Genesis 15 real quick. So turn there if you would. Go ahead and hold on to Galatians chapter 3. But flip back to Genesis chapter 15. It should be easy to find. It's right there at the beginning of your Bible. So Genesis 15 verse 1 says this. After these things. Now let me pause right there. After these things. Does anybody know what Abraham, it was actually, this is before Abraham's name was changed to Abraham. He's Abram at this point. Does anyone know what Abram did? What the things were that he had done prior to this? Okay, you, you got your Bibles open so you can probably just glance there real quick. He just had a spectacular military victory. Okay, he had gone and he had saved Lot and he had defeated a, bunch of, a group of kings and he had a spectacular military victory. So it's after these things. After all Abraham had done, after he had shown his might, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision and said, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. I, Abraham, not you, nor your strength or your military might. So put your hope, put your trust, put your confidence in me. This statement, I am your shield, is a call to faith. Your reward shall be great. Reward. Abraham had just acquired great treasure after this military victory, a tenth of which he dedicated to the Lord when he gave it to Melchizedek. But here God speaks of something greater, something that can only be acquired by faith. We read in Hebrews, 10, in Hebrews 11, verse 10, that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so with faith... God's calling on him to trust, trust in me. I have something great for you, but you can only grasp it by faith. Continuing in, chapter, continuing in Genesis 15, verse 2, And Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Now what Abram is recalling to mind here is that God has already made a promise to Abram that he would bless all the nations through his offspring. So Abraham's wondering, well, how, how are all these promises going to come true? Verse 3. Um, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Brings him out, and without the light pollution that we have in our day-to-day, -day, you can imagine what the stars look like. He walks out, and he sees these stars. 
God says, you know what I'm going to do? Well, why don't, you just, why don't you just try counting those stars? Go ahead. Abram knew he couldn't do it. It was impossible. He couldn't do that. And God says, well, so shall your offspring be. I will bring my blessing to you and to the world, and it will come through your offspring, and your children will be as numerous as the stars. And Abram, as he heard this, could do nothing but believe. There's nothing he could do. There's nothing in his power he could do at this point to make this happen. All he could do was believe. So he heard the promise and he believed. Verse 6, he believed the Lord and he, meaning God, counted it to him as righteousness. Counted in both the Hebrew and the Greek is an accounting term. It means that God credited righteousness to Abraham's account. The faith itself wasn't the righteousness. But rather faith was the means by which an alien righteousness was credited to Abraham. Now, if you know Genesis, you know that Genesis 15 comes 25 years before God commanded circumcision and 430 years before the law was given. So salvation could not have been based upon circumcision or the keeping of the law. For Abraham was justified before either was ever instituted. So what did this mean for the Galatians and what does it mean for us? Well, it means that we, and here's our second point. Let me go back to our, our, there we go. We look to the cross and we hear with faith that your whole identification has been changed in Christ. You are a recipient of the blessings of Abraham because you are indeed his heir. You are a child of Abraham. You see, one of the strongest arguments that the Judaizers had was this. In order to truly receive all the blessings that God had promised, including salvation, you have to become a child of Abraham. You have to become proper Jew. And the only way you can become a child of Abraham is to be circumcised. But Paul undercuts that argument by showing that the true children of Abraham are children not by means of physical circumcision, but by means of faith. That's what Paul will later argue in Romans. Romans chapter 2 verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so this means that the true children of Abraham are those who have faith. But I can't say it any clearer than Paul does in Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Thus, if we have saving faith in Christ, then we are a part of of Abraham's family. Remember the old song when you were kids? Father Abraham. All right. That's about as theological as it gets. From that point forward, you're just sticking legs in the air and doing all kinds of stuff. Father Abraham. If we have saving faith in Christ, we are part of Abraham's true family. A family not made by circumcision or by the law or even by ethnicity. But by hearing with faith. This is why Paul teaches in Romans 9, verse 6, that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is why John the Baptist said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And Jesus said something very much the same in John chapter 8, verse 39. The Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Abraham is our father. 
Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I hear from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And then later in verse 44, he explains who that father is. You are of your father, the devil. And of Abraham, Jesus said this in chapter 8, verse 56 of John. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it with eyes of faith. And that's what Paul is speaking about next in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. It says this, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So now Paul quotes another Old Testament passage, this time Genesis 12, 2, where Abraham initially heard the gospel truth that all the nations would be blessed through his offspring. So the blessing promised to Abraham was, from the beginning, intended to include the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that promise of the gospel, again, preceded the giving of circumcision and the giving of the law. So now, as verse 9 says, those who are of faith, that would be both Jew and Gentile, as Paul will later go on to explain. He's going to explain this a whole lot more in this book. So now then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So people from all nations have been brought in. People from all nations have been grafted in to the people of God. How? By hearing with faith. So the true people of God always were and only are made up of those who have faith like Abraham's. There are only two peoples. There are only two tribes. There are only two lineages. As I said over and over again this morning, there are only two ways to live. There are people of faith children of Abraham who live by faith and are blessed, and there are people of the flesh, children of the devil, who live by works and are cursed. And it is the negative side of that equation that Paul turns to next in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So to finish out our points this morning, look to the cross and hear with faith that your whole salvation from beginning to end has been achieved by Christ. Your whole identification, who you are, has been changed in Christ. And finally, your whole condemnation has been placed upon Christ. Paul again provides scripture from the Old Testament to prove his point. He says here, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And by quoting this text, Paul is showing that the law itself demands perfection. And if you don't obey it perfectly, you're under a curse. That's what Deemer talked about last week when he talked about there's no 99% there's no passing grade with God's law. You may be 99% right and able to keep the law, but that 1% will damn you. That's why James says in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. So friends, if you are trusting in your ability to keep the law, to be saved or to be sanctified, or to grow in any sort of way, if you are putting faith in your effort and your works to be sanctified, then you better be perfect. For the only thing acceptable to God is perfection. But Paul's not done proving his case from the Scriptures. He quotes another text, this time from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, but he quotes it here in verse 11 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So not only does the law condemn anyone who cannot keep it perfectly, the law itself teaches 
that our righteousness depends on faith and not law-keeping. The law, in essence, testifies against itself. But Paul's not done. He's not done tearing apart the false teachers with Old Testament scriptures. He continues, verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And here he's quoting Leviticus 18.5. And it seems to kind of contradict Habakkuk 2.4, the one he just quoted. But the point is clear. There are two ways to live. They cannot be mixed. You can choose to live by the law, but you will fail. For no one can keep the law perfectly. Or you can choose to live by faith, by which you will be counted as righteous, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So how does that work? How can we, foolish sinners who probably haven't even gotten past a 10% on our test before God, if that much, how can we be counted as righteous? Well, it's all because of Christ, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. And here again, Paul quotes the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23. And in that passage, we read that after capital punishment, the perpetrator was to be hung on a tree, thereby showing that God's curse was upon him. And so Paul sees in the crucifixion that Jesus was receiving the curse of God, the curse that we deserve. Jesus received the death sentence for our sin, for our law-breaking. And though he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, he became a curse for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He wasn't cursed because he hung on the cross. He hung on the cross because he was cursed by God for our sake. Why? Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Paul brings it full circle now. The blessings promised to Abraham and his seed, blessings that he took hold of by faith from afar, have now come to the Gentiles. Those who were not heirs by birth or by circumcision, but who are heirs because they have come to God by the same means, hearing with faith. And it's all God's doing not by circumcision, not by works of the law. And so Paul here is now beginning to, he'll begin to develop this a whole lot more in the passages that are coming up. But what he's doing right here is trying to get these Galatians and these Harbonites to get our eyes back on the billboard. To get our eyes back on the cross. Our default position is to trust in our flesh. Even after we're saved, Unbeliever in here this morning, your default position is to, to work your way to God. To do whatever you need to do to get to heaven somehow. Do a little bit more good than bad. That's your default position. That's the default position of every religion in the world. But Christ takes the world system and blows it up. And he says that you have to put all your hope, all your faith in him. So this morning, I want us to keep our eyes on the billboard and one of the ways we do that is by partaking of the Lord's Supper. As we come to the table this morning, that's exactly what this is designed to do. Is to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ crucified. All that he accomplished on the cross. All that he is for us on the cross. All that he accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. So as we come to the table this morning, look to the billboard. Look to the cross 
and hear with faith that your whole salvation has been achieved by the blood and body of Christ. That your whole identification has been changed. You've been brought into a new covenant with God. And your whole condemnation has been placed on Christ. And that's why his blood was poured out and his body was broken. So I want to pray for us real quick. And then I'll have Deemer come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, I know that it's so easy to look for answers in life outside of the cross, outside of the gospel. The world has a lot of solutions for the different things that ail us. And some of those solutions may even feel good. Some of those solutions may even, at least in our flesh, make sense. Father, everything we do in our Christian walk, in our Christian life, Father, I believe, and Lord, if I am wrong, then correct me. But I believe everything we do has to be centered on the gospel, centered on the cross. So Lord, that's my prayer, that Harbin's would be a more gospel-centered church than we are right now. That the leadership of this church would filter everything through the gospel and make tough decisions as to what we can do and what we can't do based upon how central, how much it's centered on the gospel. And that the members of this church would be empowered to go home, to go to their communities, to go to their workplaces with the gospel and minister with the gospel Meet needs with the gospel. Serve hurting people with the gospel. So God, I pray that you would do that work because we know our eyes. We're prone to wander. We feel it every day. We're prone to wander. So even now as we taste this fruit of the vine and this bread, Lord, may these be a means by which you cause us to gaze upon the billboard the placard of Jesus Christ crucified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.